So I've been um, contemplating this theme of sacredness. It's just arisen for me as a, a place in my practice I'd like to explore. So I'm going to share that exploration with you. I want to talk a little bit about Ness, N-E-S-S. I've never looked up like the etymology of Ness, like of sacredness or emptiness or happiness. Uh, but I think of Ness as a non-substantiator. It's like... It's like it it undermines the quality that it's something that we can we can grasp and relate to as some uh, fixed object. So we can align our thinking with with Zen when we think of everything as ness, its cupness, its headacheness, its cheeseness, its computer screenness, as a non-substantiator. And especially as we talk about qualities of practice, as soon as we make something into an existent, then we've lost the point of Zen. On the other hand, if we cling to the pole that nothing exists, so let's not talk about anything because it's all some mass of nothingness, that's silly and that's not Zen either. So ness helps us. So uh, sacredness. I did look up a little bit of the etymology of that. And the roots, to me themselves, it's just circular. They, the roots also point to more, the roots point to more roots to less conclusions. So to consecrate, to make holy, so holy, too, is another word, and I didn't go into the etymology of that. I think it has something to do with whole, wholeness. So what do these words point to? Now, in a sense, you don't, we don't need to know what they point to. It's not important that we can define what something is. It's okay if it's undefinable. Things don't exist simply by the virtue of our defining them. On the other hand, when you define something, it can pop out. It can, it can stick out. It can catch your attention. So there is some merit to, to naming this thing, this experience called sacredness. So what can be named or defined does not exhaust what exists or what is experientially real. So as we explore this, if we can't define sacredness, that doesn't matter, actually. Maybe it's enough that we say sacredness and let that just you know, float in the air and have some effect. So we may not be able to define it and we may not be able to touch it and interestingly enough, for most of us, sacredness is more experientially real than a lot of things that we take as, you know, hard facts of reality or, or things that we just assume are real, like subatomic particles or epigenetics or carbon 
dioxide. I bet that most of us have never directly experienced those things. And only, only recently have we attested to their existence. But sacredness cultures everywhere, as long as there has been time, have attested to that. One way we, we talk about sacred, even in a, a secular context, is meaning that it's something that should not be violated. We could even say a recipe is sacred. You shouldn't violate it. Don't, don't change the amount of butter. Or some uh, principle that is deeply meaningful to us, the sacred cow. People know what that's about. In India, the cow is, revived, uh, is regarded as a divine creature. So sacred often means we should respect something's nature or not take it outside of its proper or native context. It should not be misused for some reason. Or at least there's some reason given. Something shouldn't be criticized. Or we might say childhood is sacred. And what we're meaning there is that this is a time that we shouldn't impose something that is not native to its context. Let's respect the sacredness of, of childhood. Sacredness is also presented as a, a possible feeling tone of life a feeling tone of existence, the experience of the sacred. Some people feel that if they walk into uh, a temple, walk into the mountains. I sometimes experience that when I walk into record stores or a place that has really good pizza. a feeling tone of life, sacredness. But how is that feeling tone different from excitement or from joy or, you know, curiosity? Sometimes we can contour something, get some sense of what it is by looking into its opposite. What do we mean when we say something is profane or when something is ordinary? It's just an ordinary park, an ordinary meal, an ordinary period of meditation. What are we pointing to then? Maybe right there we're implicating that we know there's such an experience as the sacred. We know that because this is ordinary, and the sacred is our reference point. If you think about that, what's the opposite of sacred to you? What qualities indicate the opposite of, of sacred. I was thinking that perhaps the opposite of sacred is a sense of cheapness or valuelessness to experience. When when we experience one experience of sacredness that is often arises for people, somewhat ubiquitous in the course of, of meditation practice, is an experience that everything is sacred. 
everything is sacred. It's, it's some sense that there is some ineffable value in all the myriad presences within and without. It's different than walking in and out of a church. This is the experience of everything is that. In contrast to the everyday experience of this is just a pen. This is just a plant. This is just another day. So with the experience of sacredness, is it a presence or an absence? Is it the sense of of cheapness or an undervaluing of life or a quality of inattention that goes away and something is revealed? Or is it an arising in itself? Is it an ambiance, like a mood that hovers in a space, a sacred atmosphere? I asked somebody about uh, sacred recently. I asked them, what is, do you, th- you relate to that word and what do you make of that? And they said something like, well, when I meditate, I feel more intensely present, more intensely present, and that's when I, what's what I correlate with the quality of sacredness? An intensification of life. The details uh, pop out. I think there are lots of interesting studies that show that a very small bandwidth of the actual spectrum of light and vibration that hits our senses, a very small spectrum of that, first of all, is able to be detected and even less able to be processed because of both physiological limitation and also um, limitation of cognition. But sometimes we have an intensity of existence. People in the past, uh, it was not a special thing to be aware of, of other dimensions of existence uh, interpenetrating with ours. Now we're very skeptical of that. We think people had magical thinking. One association of sacred one thing we mean is that the sacred experience or the sacred way of perceiving is that something is connected to, it's connected to something that transcends its context. So it's not just a plastic bottle in the lot on Killingsworth. The bottle is that, but it's more than that. It's not just that. It's an emblem or an expression, a presencing of something, we could say larger, a presencing of truth or goodness or beauty, also words that we can never pin down. I had a experience that was very pivotal for me when I was first studying at the monastery. It was after one of my first long retreats, so it's about 15 years ago. And I wasn't on Killingsworth, but I was on Fremont. And I was in that park on Fremont and 7th. 
right over there across from uh, Rerun. And there was a child's birthday party. And I looked at a child's face. And for lack of better words, that, that face was the whole universe. I saw God there in that face. I didn't see like a beard, you know, and long hair like I saw Jesus. But the best I could say is I saw God on that face. That face was a child. It was just a child, but it wasn't just a child. One of the specialties of Zen Buddhism is an appreciation that we make things sacred through quality of attention. If you have any engagement with the Japanese culture, which has been profoundly shaped by Buddhist thought, you know that there's this uh, exquisite regard for each element of ritual, the teacup itself, that which you whisk it with, the motions, the incense you light, everything, the quality of attention brought to things brings forth the quality of, of sacredness. It's an embodied orientation towards something. So in this sense, spiritual discipline or training is not passive, but we train in making ourselves susceptible to the sacred. We make ourselves available to the experience. This is an experiment to undertake. So treating your body or other bodies and things as sacred with preciousness. See what happens when you do that. Whether it's your dinner plate or you know, the door or whatever it is, the pen on your desk. To treat it as sacred and you find out what's the bodily relation to that thing when it's sacred. In Zen monastic training, you handle the ritual implements of eating and the meditation hall and the robes themselves with um, utmost respect. Each of those things is considered the body of awakening. It's the Buddha's body. There's some resonance there with the sense of communion in Christian tradition. I, don't, I know this as an outsider, that one partakes of the body of, of the divine. And people can correct me if I'm off base with that. So that's an experiment I invite you into, and I remind myself of. What happens if I engage with things as if they were sacred? I enter that question and I see what happens to the quality of my, my relation. There is a central philosophical teaching of Mahayana Buddhism, which is the, the source of Tibetan and Zen Buddhism, among other traditions, Tantra. Mahayana being a historically later vision of the Buddhist teaching. And I say it's a philosophy, but it's, me it's more than a philosophy. It's a teaching that's meant as a pointer to something that we can see if it's pointed out or something we know. But when we know something and someone says, did you see that you know that? Sometimes you know it more deeply. 
So this is um, the teaching of the three kayas, the three bodies of Buddha. So these three bodies are Dharmakaya, Sambhogakaya, and Nirmanakaya. And these are Sanskrit words. This is a teaching about what reality is. You know, just like we have a modern view of what reality is, and if you're engaged with quantum physics, it may be a little bit more broad than the mainstream materialistic view of an objective world. Just like we have a view of reality, Mahayana Buddhists have a view of what is actually happening here. What is this universe? And this is their offering to us. The first body... And these are inseparable. These are three aspects of one thing. You can't have a three-sided jewel. I don't think you can. But, if, but it's something like three facets of a jewel. So dharmakaya is the first body. This is basically talking about openness. As we were meditating, I was inviting you to tune into the space that surrounds you and, and interpenetrates you. This space, which is everywhere, all of us exist in a temple of space, a temple of sky, even if there are walls. This space is that within which happenings happen. That is the very quality of openness is what allows anything to happen at all. I had this, uh, I asked a rabbi a question when I was younger. And I said, well, if there's a God, who created the space for God to arise in in the first place? This was a really juicy question for me as a seven-year-old. At the time, I didn't realize it's a profound koan. It's a profound spiritual question. When you think of the, the notion of origin or creator God, well, how did how did that guy get there in the first place? What made it possible for that, that being to be there? We're asking about, is there a beginning to reality? And Dharmakaya says, um, no. This openness is unending. It's never started. And further, that's your mind. Each of us in bodies is partaking of this primordial and timeless field in which something can happen. That's Dharmakaya. Then Sambhogakaya, now excuse me, I want to translate Dharmakaya, so Kaya is body, and Dharma means truth, or essence. We could, we could take some liberty. So Dharmakaya means body of truth. It's the dimension within which possibility is possible. Then we have Sambhogakaya. And this is translated as the enjoyment or the bliss body. The openness, the space of Dharmakaya, because it's open, there's creative sparkling within it. There's light within it. We don't know why. 
It has no beginning, but there's space, and because there's space, there's light. It's actually, the reverse is true. Because there's light, there's space. As human beings, that creative sparkling or sparking that is omnipresent, because of our biological hardware, we experience that as awareness, as cognition, as presence. So mind has, so far, these two aspects. Your mind is openness and creative sparkling. And that's everything from the most basic thought of a cheeseburger to a grand vision to the experience of these words passing through your tympanic membrane and being processed as some really inexplicable event of experience. Reality is sparkling. And that is this. That's what Sambhogakaya means. The third body is called Nirmanakaya. And Nirmanakaya is sometimes translated as body of emanation, which is a bad translation because Buddhism is not about something that emanates something. It's not about like there's this source and all things arise from that source. It's more intimate than that. So let me use um, a metaphor. And again, it's the most important thing I can do as a Zen teacher who I'm already kind of sullying the tradition by talking about this so explicitly. The most important thing I can say is this is talking about what's actually happening right now. The most basic nature of what you are and what this is. Whatever your this is, this is what this is. Okay. Nirmanakaya, a better translation than body of emanation is body of expression. So I'll use an image. If Dharmakaya and Sambhogakaya, openness and the creative sparkling within openness, let's say Dharmakaya is like the expanse of the ocean, Sambhogakaya is the wave, excuse me, is the wetness of the ocean. The expanse of the ocean, Sambhogakaya is the wetness of that ocean. Nirmanakaya is the waves, is the particular shapes that arise with never being separate from that ocean and its wetness, that space and its creative sparkling. So you could say all things are waves of Buddha. All things are waves of this openness illumination. All things are, are shapes of the ungraspable mystery of awareness. You can't grasp a wave you try to, but then it recedes into the water. But yet there was a wave. Each drop of ocean is the ocean and is water. And waves are waves, just like you are you. And yet you are the ocean. Just like a wave, we can look at it, you can draw a wave and appreciate it as it has a particular shape, but it is not separate from the ocean. The wave is the ocean, just as the only way that the ocean manifests is through the shaping of its water. It always has a shape. 
It's a matter of perspective. You know, sometimes people talk, when they're talking about spiritual matters, they say spiritual practice is like a drop returning to the ocean. Or like at death, it's like a drop returning to the ocean. But that's not correct from a Zen perspective because the ocean never departs from the ocean. The ocean always expresses ocean, and it expresses ocean through wave. So this teaching, of course, you can relate to it as this maybe interesting, maybe perplexing and troubling philosophy, but rather as a poetic resonance of why life is amazing. why we are all embedded in a deeper, mysterious context. It's an invitation to appreciate. We could say that sacredness is not about uh, an object or an experience. It's not like if you know someone gave you an ancient what's-it from wherever, then you would experience sacredness. Sacredness arises from the outlook that you have. The source point, the root of what you experience from. If you know that awareness is a wave of a dark and boundless ocean, then what you are aware of is experienced differently than if you just kind of in an ordinary way, feel like there's some hard objects out there that I like or I dislike. So sacredness is an outlook, a way of seeing that is rooted in connecting to the basis of mind. I've been thinking of the phrase actual mind because yeah, that's a relative term, actual, right? Actual versus false. But when we think we are only our thoughts, that is false. Thoughts are just the creative sparkling of dharmakaya, of mind. They're not the actual mind. So let me shift gears um, a little bit. Suppose sacredness is a freshness of presence. That I don't really know much about biblical fact or mythology, but we tumbled out of the Garden of Eden because we ate the apple of knowledge, which means we know too much stuff. Or we think we know so much stuff that the world is smothered in a thick blanket of ideas, notions, and opinions. And so sacredness, we're reunited with sacredness when there's a freshness of engagement. There's a pith instruction in Dzogchen in the Tibetan meditation tradition that says, meditate like a child entering a temple for the first time. And what that means is try on a sense of wonder. Use your imagination to spark a sense of wonder. Suppose sacredness is creativity. 
when we pay attention to impermanence, we can say in, in fidelity to our own direct experience that life is pure creativity. There is nothing but arising. When we start to understand the phenomena of time, of what we mean by the present moment, the universe is always arising. It is omnipresencing. You can only be aware of something which is in motion. And that is everything. So when we engage a universe that is creativity, that's you could call that sacred. Why are things always appearing? Suppose sacredness is enacting the gift of creativity, the possibility. So when we think of like theistic understanding, we think, well, God created and therefore creating is a divine act. So the artist or the musician or whoever is the inventor is engaging the sacred gift of creativity. Yes, and we are always doing that. We're always making stuff up. We're always making stuff up. Life is continual creativity. There's no script for the next moment. We're always doing novel acts. We're always actually enacting the three bodies of Dharmakaya, Sambhogakaya, Nirmanakaya. Suppose sacredness is non-aggression. That we really train our heart and purify ourselves of even the small stance towards something should not exist. That's kind of what what anger is at certain kinds of anger or hatred is a sense of this shouldn't exist. Suppose sacredness is what happens when that's absent. Suppose sacredness is um, susceptibility to beauty. How is it that some people are susceptible to beauty in a sunset and others in a Porsche? Some people can only find beauty in vegan cupcakes and some see it in Monet or Miro. How do we become susceptible to beauty? How can we be struck by beauty? Slayed by beauty. I want to be slayed by beauty. What can we do about that susceptibility? But we could call a way of being that is susceptible sacred. Suppose sacredness is non-fragmentation. Now one of the things we learn when we meditate is that there's this discriminating function of the mind. And I mean that in a moment-by-moment sense of, I think it's the amygdala. No, it's the parietal frontal cortex, the PFC. There is this aspect of the brain that neuroscience has said is responsible. Of course, this is reductionistic. A brain is not responsible for anything. It is responsible for dividing the moment into disparate parts. The basic division is I'm here and everything else is there. 
we think of the word holy and wholeness, there is this longing to let go of that fragmentation, to experience as much as we can, because we can't experience it completely as long as we're in a body, to experience as much as we can what it's like when the wave recedes into the ocean and is subsumed into the larger context, the larger network of relations. Suppose sacredness is non-fragmentation, a wholeness. I don't mean psychologically, like I'm whole because now I have a girlfriend. Something more, more fundamental than that. I'm winding down here. Uh, In the context of Buddhism, sacredness is an interesting quality because impermanence is such a a centered observation. For the relative mind, which is this, I hope this isn't offensive, the relative mind is conceptually compromised. It's limited in its, its ability to see. For the, for the relative mind, that's a paradox, sacredness and impermanence, or even a kind of contradiction. How can a world that is always going away be sacred? What would that mean? But for actual mind, these cause each other. Impermanence is sacredness. Sacredness is impermanence the holy flux, the fluxing whole. Zen is a study of psychoactive perception. We are watching how what we're seeing is not separate from the way we see. We watch how what we're seeing is not separate from how we're being. That what we're seeing and what comes towards us in life is not separate, Neither is it caused by, but not separate from the beliefs and attitudes with which we see. There's a Sufi saying, in a crowd of saints, the pickpocket sees only wallets. I remember when I was uh, a younger person and I was just, I think it's like overflowing with testosterone I all I would see was attractive women. There might be lots of other interesting things going on, but my perception was so fixated. Lots of examples of that. We see what our desires and our outlooks and what we see in life are so intimate. I talked last week a little bit about about imagination. There is a fallacy that one can relate in life towards just the facts. You know what a fallacy is? A fallacy is like a belief that's false, essentially. There's a fallacy that one can relate just towards the fact of life. That is, that we can just be rational and that, that rational perception is not flawed or limited. It's a sense of I believe what I can see, or rather I act from a place of no belief. I'm an atheist. 
I've never seen God. You can't prove him to me. It, therefore, there isn't one. Or I refuse to invest. Or I'm agnostic. If I don't, if I can't taste it or touch it, it's not real to me. But this, too, is just a belief. This, too, is a belief I believe. It's a fallacy that one can relate just towards facts. So we're always seeing through some image. We always have some outlook, a notion of what and how the universe is. You could say we have many outlooks within us, at least in potential. So that the world is just stuff, plain as day, is an outlook. It's a belief and a vision that tends to confirm itself. And likewise, that the world is sacred is an outlook, a belief, a vision that tends to confirm itself. And the question for us as practitioners of this psychoactive discipline of Zen is, what's the most enlivening and satisfying way to use the mind? What's the most enlivening and satisfying way to use the mind? And so we're invited into the way of sacredness, whatever that means. <laughs>